I'm Sean Borstrock, and on this episode of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast, I'm speaking with Cressy Wesley of Elvis and Cressy. Elvis and Cressy was set up in 2005 to solve the problem of material ending up in landfill. They started with London's decommissioned fire hose. They also reclaimed parachute silk, auction banners, and printing blankets to name a few of the other materials they use. They upcycle the materials and ethically hand make them into sustainable luxury bags and accessories. 50% of their profits go to charity. And to date, Elvis and Cressy have rescued over 200 tons from landfill and their workshop runs on renewable energy. Cressy, thank you so much for joining us on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. No, thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with chatting about you really. I've listened to lots of your talks, seen some of your stage presentations at events, and I'm really interested in about how you came to do what you do. Sure. Well, I guess I guess there's always there's always two stories, right? There's always the really really long story and the really relatively short one. Um, but I can summarize them. The long story is that I grew up in Western Canada and it was beautiful and wonderful, and I had access to big nature as as a child. And it it is something that has stuck with me as a kind of baseline of expectation for how the world should be and what the world should be able to deliver for people. So my understanding of ecosystem services, let's say, is quite profound. Um, And I don't think anything compares to it. So I've never been as impressed by a city as I have been by a waterfall or a moose or or a bear, that that kind of thing. So so that that gives you an impression of who I am. And when I first uh, left Canada, I was uh, 16 or 17 years old. I got a scholarship to finish high school at, a, at an amazing school in Hong Kong. But I went suddenly from this beautiful, amazing place to, to a also beautiful place, but a city-state where there was hyper-consumption. And, and it really changed my impression of what the world, the state that the world was in and what might need to happen in order to keep it pristine and protect it for future generations. And at the time, I thought politics was going to be the way to um, to to be involved in in that debate. And I did a politics degree, but really learned during that time that I would be a very unsuitable politician <laughs> unless I was going to become a, a dictator <laughs> because uh, I don't like compromising and I don't like waiting for things to happen patiently while you convince people over a period of decades when we've never really had decades to solve these problems. And then, you know, I, I finished school and, and got a job and my first job was in venture capital. And I realized through that, the power of business to make change relatively quickly. And when I came to the UK in 2004, I had this unique window of time where I could really explore what I was interested in. And what I was interested in was waste. And I knew that I could probably have an impact not on the 100 million tons we were sending to landfill. So that's the short story is that I discovered there was 100 million tons going to landfill in the UK. And I knew I couldn't solve that problem, but I knew I could solve one problem. And that's when I found the fire hose. I found that it was a three to 10 ton a year problem for London. I found that it was quite a beautiful problem. You know, there's these rich, lustrous coils of red, life-saving material on a rooftop in Croydon. And I knew then that, that that was something I could, that I could change. That was something, that was a problem I could fix. 
and we started there and and here we are 16 almost 17 years later <laughs> and we solve 15 different ways problems now so so there you go there's the, the long story and the short story wow I mean, I love that story about, you know, growing up in the countryside and the animals and the nature, the flora and the fauna that surrounds you has more of an impact than the concrete. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up in a, in a town in, in Canada. It's just that we went camping every weekend. You know, my parents really were taking us into nature. And then I, I, I would go, you know, to, to horse riding ranch camps and into the mountains in the summertime. And and because nature is so accessible in Canada, you know, it's 10 minutes away, it's five minutes away. Like, and, and by, by 10 minutes away, I mean, you can get to places where there's no people, no roads, no radio signal. <laughs> it's not like the UK where as hard as you try to get lost, there's a pub somewhere <laughs> or another. Or somebody. Of, yeah, or another, or another hiker somewhere. So it was just... It was just that. And then, yeah, as a, as a young adult, I did go to places like, you know, New York and Hong Kong and Tokyo. And they were kind of cool, but I was never comfortable there. I never felt like that was where I belonged. And I was never, you know, if you, if you're, if I'm going to tell you my favorite museum in London, it's, it's not the, it's not the V&A which is sad because we've got a bag and a permanent exhibition there right now. It is the Natural History Museum. Where we've got, you know, cuttings of giant redwoods, and yes, I'm I'm a I'm a nature driven person, for sure. Yeah. You know, I love the countryside, but I don't seem to get um, the time to go to the countryside as much as I'd really like to. Mm. I don't guess I could talk about that for the rest of the <laughs> the rest of the hour, but <laughs> yeah, we won't. <laughs> you know, this um, discovery of fire hose um, has led to, you know, like you said. A decade of business. What's mm. the most exciting thing about what it is that you do? Oh, that that would that's really tough because because it's self directed. Because we are innovators and we're constantly doing R and D. The most exciting thing is always the fact that we can tackle a new problem, create a new solution for it, and because we're we have a direct to consumer business. You know, we work. We we don't. We're not selling to a limited audience. We can always test these ideas very quickly and very directly and get a response and then move beyond that. So everyone thinks that businesses move slowly. And actually, although we sell very slow moving consumer goods because we're not trying to fuel consumption, our pace of R&D is quite quick. And to give you an example of where we are now, two years ago, we had outgrown our previous location and Elvis and I said, right, now it's time to actually move to a farm. Let's move the entire business to a farm. And we wanted to come to a farm because from a climate change perspective, the most direct impact you can have is is on carbon sequestration is if you get involved with regenerative agriculture, which we knew nothing about. So we started researching it um, two years ago while we were looking for a farm. We found early days of the pandemic, we're like, right, let's do this. So during the pandemic, I think when a lot of people were hibernating, we sold our previous location, we bought a farm, we have established a regenerative agriculture project, we are planting 10 acres of vines, we're going to be making the best wine in the UK because it'll be chemical warfare free and uh, powered only by nature-based solutions. And we also constructed a sewage treatment plant here to treat all of our own waste and wastewater without using power, only using 
worms for vermicompost for the solid waste and this beautiful wetland system for the liquid waste, which basically turns liquid waste into wood and willow and walnut and plums and gorgeous plants and a net biodiversity game. I think what's exciting for me about what we do is that there's there's no end to it ever because there's no end to the problems that we face as a civilization, whether that be climate change or biodiversity, and there's no end to waste problems. So it's not like we could ever be bored. You know, we're almost perpetually excited and overstimulated because there's so much to do. And because we're entrepreneurial, we don't have to kind of talk about doing things. We can just do them. We don't have to seek permission to do things. We can just get them done. And that's, I guess, the the power of business. When I was working at my first job in a VC, what I learned was that if you're making money as a business, that is carte blanche to do what you want. And unfortunately, most businesses take that carte blanche and they destroy the planet and degrade its people and, you know, have these hideously exploitative models. But for us, we were like, well, we have basically permission to be as good as a company possibly can be and have as much impact as it, as we possibly can in, in whatever time we've got left. And we're 44, so hopefully lots of time. There's been quite a big drive by some companies to um, invest in this recycling of water. And I know that in South Africa, there's a, a vineyard called Spear, and they have that um, self-sustaining ecosystem where they, you know, use reeds and different mm. plants and animals to to uh, recycle their water, which mm. they then obviously reuse. I mean, is that is that the kind of thing you're talking about? So you've got this. Yes. So we're in an area of, you know, I know everyone. The the UK is this country where everyone assumes it's it's raining all the time and it's incredibly green all the time. But actually, where we are in the southeast of the UK is in an area of water stress. So the goal of our project is to have, you know, net increase in microbiology in the soil, which means carbon sequestration into the soil, um, an increase in topsoil so that we can have, you know, healthier plants and more nutrient-dense food, um, better water infiltration so that you hold and retain water in the landscape, and also increasing just overall how much water we retain in the landscape. So our idea here is to be totally water independent by harvesting rated water, treating all of our own wastewater, and then retaining that water in the landscape in wildlife ponds so that we, yes, retain the water, but also have a net biodiversity, a net biodiversity gain. And we can feed birds and insects and pollinators and, and essentially just, you know, revive a sleeping ecosystem because there is a seed bank here. There is the potential for this this ground to come back to life, despite the fact that, that the previous owners ran a turf cutting business. So they literally sold their topsoil. Um, you know, of course, because we love problems, we had to pick probably the, <laughs> the most degraded farm in in all of um, in all of Kent. But but hey, we can bring that back. Nature nature has a will to survive, and all it needs is a bit of you know, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful compost um, to get it going again. And people like you who are kind of investing the time and the energy um, mm. to make sure that these things, you know, exist yes. um, indefinitely. How does it impact on the Elvis and Cressy business? 
I think that's a uh, that's a fantastic question because a lot of people said, "How does farming fit with uh, luxury handbags?" Well, it fits perfectly with luxury handbags because we are going to be making wine here, which is a luxury good. We are going to also be growing food here, um, so we can have these incredible. You know, I can imagine in a couple of years' time when we've got to grips with the landscape, having farm to fork dinners. Um, taking people through the workshop, explaining how we work with all of our raw materials, not just the wastes that we collect, but also with the landscape. It's probably old school luxury what we do, because we are the founders of the brand. And to us, the idea of luxury is about cherishing everything, not just a leather hide that we could turn into a bag, a handbag. We cherish everything: the air, the water, the landscape. The animals, the materials that we are lucky enough to rescue, the team that works with us—you know—we don't subcontract our production to teams that are not paid well in far-off lands. We have two workshops: one in the UK, one in Istanbul, and it's our team in both sites making all our goods. You know, there's very few luxury brands today that manufacture all of their products and all of their packaging. <laughs> That's something that we do because. Of our obsession with ensuring it's all rescued materials, it's all things that we can add innovation, creativity, and value to, and also ensuring that we're not having a, a, a net negative impact by drawing down on resources that really shouldn't be used for consumer goods at all. Part of your business is a design and a design and manufacture business. Yeah, how have you、um, tackled that business coming from where you came from? So. We essentially tackled that because we had to. When we first started collecting the the fire hose, we I did all enormous amounts of research into what fire hose could be. The reason we're in luxury is because I discovered that a similar type of material has been used in luxury businesses since the advent of complex polymers. So I thought they're generating this raw material new. Why are they doing that when we've got a fire hose problem? Um, you know, so I was already kind of questioning it, and actually, I think a traditional design background may have hampered us—not not the not the young people who are being trained today, but your traditional、uh, design school was teaching you come up with an idea, then you go and acquire the materials to achieve that idea. To whether that be a blimp or a building or a bag, and who cares about the death of that item? Whereas we we started with a problem, we were sitting there staring at this beautiful fire hose, thinking, "What is the best possible next life for this material? How provocative can we be with this material? How can we challenge industries? How can we challenge ways of thinking? How can we challenge consumer behavior? Because fundamentally, if we want to get to a, a zero carbon economy, we have to change our culture. We have to change how we appreciate the world around us." And the materials that flow through that world, and what better way to do it than by setting up a completely different kind of luxury business? So I think a a a, a design background may have been a hindrance. What we were though was stubborn. You know, Elvis learned to sew. Elvis learned to produce bags. We 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 studied the techniques. We started developing products, and we were never satisfied with products until they were. Long-lasting, utilitarian, beautiful—you know—that's th- that's a big thing that we learned from the world of luxury. Is that I might just love fire hose the way it is, 
But in order to get other people to love it, it has to be useful. It has to be beautiful. It has to be inspirational. And that's down to Elvis. I, you know, I, I bring home the I bring home the problems. He creates the solutions. He certainly makes them beautiful. Perfect. That's the perfect yes. relationship. I know. I read. Um, you said in in some in one of the talks uh, I saw, you said if you follow your heart, you always make the right decisions. Yes, I, I suppose. And it's it's really interesting. Uh, someone challenged me on that recently, and they said, "Well, it depends what your heart's telling you to do." <laughs> some people's some people's hearts are saying quite different things, but. For me, yes, that was very true. I think if you follow your humanity, maybe that's maybe that's um maybe that's better because there's there's no question that as a species, um, we've evolved to be a bit greedy and a bit selfish. You know that there's there's instincts around that that have been bred into us, um, th- you know, through survival times, and that if you're listening to that side of your heart, you're going to make mistakes. You have to listen to other people's grandchildren. You have to listen to the demands of, of people who have no access to education, no access to, you know, let's say power or a voice. Um, and you have to listen really, really hard to hear the earth talking to you. You know, you have to go outside at nighttime cup your hands around the back of your ears and wait patiently for to listen to nature and and when you hear it it's so profound that that i think that's what takes you in good directions that's certainly what works for me you've been working over the past decade on the firehose business how has it changed since you started it's changed really dramatically. You know, in the first year, we could only make belts. That's what we were technically capable of doing. Fire hoses long and straight. Uh, belts are long and straight. It was an easy way in. But we got better and better at working with the material. We started to develop kind of a zero waste design methodology whereby, you know, a fire hose is 10 centimeters wide. So all of our patterns for bags became based on these 10 centimeter principle, and which means you don't have offcuts. And then you, you sort of transpose that way of thinking onto other materials. So we started with fire hose belts, then we were able to make our own packaging out of other materials that we rescued, like tea sack, shoe boxes, jiffy pouches that we were collecting from local opticians, bread boxes that we were collecting from Marks and Spencer, from our, our local Marks and Spencer. And we got to expand into all kinds of other materials. So now we rescue 12 to 15 different materials on a regular basis. It, by, let's say, 2010, we had solved the firehose problem, not permanently, because it's a problem that keeps getting generated every year. So we just have to keep going at that. But because we had reached a certain size where we knew we could take all of the fire hose each year, we then started thinking big about other problems, which led us to looking at leather. Um, you know, fire hose, let's, let's say, still very niche problem, but leather waste is a, global, uh, is a global issue and it's enormous. And we thought when we approached that one that we shouldn't design products, but that we should desi- design a system, a circular system that would allow leather waste to be solved as a problem wherever it might occur. And that led us into a long-term partnership with the Burberry Foundation to help us scale that leather solution. It also, you know, led us to thinking about other challenges that we could tackle, which is kind of why we're at the farm. And 
I think what happens over time is that you get lots of people talk about mission creep as a bad thing, but actually we've had mission explosion because in initially we thought we could just solve the fire hose problem. Now I think I can change the whole luxury industry. Now I think I can change consumption. Now I think I can change the way people view an aluminium can that's littered on the street. I think I can change the way people view manufacturing processes. Over the course of the pandemic, we also worked with Queen Mary University to design a solar-powered microforge so that we could transform aluminium waste into hardware. And it's worked, and we're open-sourcing that technology. We're sharing that with the world. Um, we're not patenting it. We're not trying to hang on to it. So I think, I think, yeah, over time what happens is that you find out what you're good at, and you should... If what you're good at is good for the environment, you should actually think about expanding your footprint. You shouldn't think about limiting your footprint. You should think about exploding your footprint and maximizing your impact. And that's what's really been great, let's say, about my 40s. You know, in our 30s, Elvis and I were getting good at what we did. In our 40s, we're focusing purely on impact. And in a way, I can't wait till we're 50 because... I just, I just think we'll be unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're unstoppable now. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It is. It's fun times. Do you think that within the luxury world, you really can make um, that difference? Because you know, you were you, you referred earlier to uh, many other companies using the same materials that are that are used in the fire hoses, and they continue to do that, mm. um, and they continue to um, expand their product ranges with those materials mm. and as you see I, I suppose as fashion continues to grow that material <laughs> is becoming so prominent i mean I, I can't think of the number of people i see walking around with you know just the shopper for example well all i can say is when we started we we people thought we were crazy and certainly from within the luxury industry, which is, you know, you, you, you know more about it than I do, but it's a very stratified industry. Um, it's very, I would say, hierarchical. Um, and there's some snobbery there. You know, there's certain companies, there's some certain companies that think they are more important than other companies, which I find, I find to be patently ridiculous. <laughs> um, but People thought we were crazy. And then in 2009, we, uh, an amazing journalist decided to put one of our belts on Cameron Diaz in a Mario Testino photo shoot. And that was the first ever US green issue of Vogue magazine. And, and that changed the debate. Suddenly we weren't crazy people anymore. We were getting awards in the UK. We were being called the future of luxury, which was terrifying because Elvis and I thought, you know, how can we be the future of a, of a billion dollar industry where there's only two of us? Um, with a belt. With a belt. Um, but actually what we've seen is the industry coming to meet us where we are. So I think, I think there's, we were, we were, we were pioneering and, and it, it, the industry is changing. And what's really fascinating is that I feel even more pressure now to stay crazy because I want them to run further and run faster. And if we stay at this cutting edge of what is the best for the world and what is the best for its people, and we keep proving that that's financially viable and wonderful to, and, and creates a wonderful environment in which to work, a hugely creative space, then we are just 
constantly able to demand of the industry what we expect from ourselves and what we in fact are delivering ourselves. So I'm not, I'm not campaigning. I'm not demanding them to change. I'm not saying, here's what I think you should do. All I'm saying is, here's what we're doing. And it's unbelievably good fun. It's profitable. We give 50% of our profits to charity, which is the best day of the year. And we're also achieving all of these good things. And then you say, a dance-off style. <laughs> so what moves do you got to show me? And we can keep challenging. And we can challenge in a very profound way because we're doing it ourselves. We're not asking of anyone to do things that we haven't done and haven't been doing for a decade, at least a decade. So I, I do think that we can have an impact on the industry in the same way that a fly that flies into the nose of a bull in a china shop can have a real impact <laughs> on the china shop and on the bull. Your story, and I suppose many of the others, you know, the people that I'm chatting to, are inspirational because they um, are doing exactly what you're doing. You know, they're mm. challenging this perception of luxury, um, which is promoted by the big conglomerates mm. as something that it's not. Yes, it's a big. It's a. It's a. It's a very. It's a very weird paradox for me, and. The way that I've come to think of it is that true luxury has to be creative and you can't be creative and destructive at the same time. So all of these companies that through their pace and practices and processes and raw material choices are destroying the planet or exploiting its people are not creative. They're destructive. So the, the chief designers at these companies if they want to truly be thought of as creative, need to either change the way the company functions or they need to leave. And that might sound harsh, but it's we're at code red for the planet. I don't I'm not I don't have the patience anymore to be polite about some of these things. I used to be I used to be pleased and impressed by mediocrity and slow incremental change, but I'm not anymore. I now think that any company that doesn't consider itself to be necessary in the fight against climate change, I don't consider them to be a, a viable business anymore. I think of them as as planet-sponsored entities or state-sponsored entities. You know, there's this amazing study that anthropologists did in the U.S. about people who worked for Walmart. And the vast majority of people who worked there were reliant on state aid in lots of different forms, like Medicaid or food stamps, etc. And if a company relies, if a company's employees rely on the state in order to survive, that's not a successful company. This isn't a, a family of billionaires that we should want to, we should want to aspire to be. It's, it's, you know, these are not my billionaires. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> should we have billionaires? Should, should anyone aspire to have more money than they can possibly spend when there's people who don't have enough to eat? I, it's just a weird, it's a weird construct for me. And luxury has somehow, luxury which used to be about quality and longevity and creativity and authenticity and provenance is not about those things anymore. And that's why it's really important for Elvis and I to be about those things, but also to talk 
non-ironically about the fact that the most luxurious product that we create here is probably the cleanest fresh water in the southeast of England. And that's because we're treating it with microbiology and with the soil, and we can break down things, uh, macromolecules through the root zone that aren't being broken down in traditional sewage treatment systems, like estrogen, like, you know, hormones that you find in birth control pills and um, antidepressants, which current current wastewater treatment systems aren't treating. Well, hey, current wastewater treatment companies in this country are dumping sewage left, right, and center. Yeah, which, I, well, which, I live on the Thames. <laughs> which, you know, it isn't that, I think that's one of the most provocative things that Elvis and I do. Because when you've got enormous companies that are constantly funneling dividends to their shareholders, saying we don't actually have the funds to treat sewage effectively, and yet Elvis and I, this tiny little company, and we're treating all of our own sewage ourselves in partnership with nature, well, then I can sit very happily on my high horse and say, oh no, oh no, Kaiser, I think you're wrong. I think you're mistaken. I think this is very affordable and very doable. I just think you lack the willpower. Yeah, it might have. It might not even be lacking the willpower. It just might be no interest because of the the um, the monetary impact it has on their business and, like you've said, their shareholders. Mm. But how sadistic is that to choose money over life? This is the. This is the. This is also one of the 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 most bizarre things that we are we're somehow capable of selling ourselves a vision of the future where money today is better than food and life 20 years down the down the road for people in the Marshall Islands people in I mean it's just it's completely ridiculous that we th that we somehow think this is acceptable there's incredible things worth celebrating and and after all within these companies there are unbelievably talented and gifted people you know I've I've had the privilege of working with with some some teams at Burberry that have dedicated their entire career to making a, a, a slow-moving, large, giant company like that better every day. And how hard is that? that? That's incredibly difficult to do. And they're doing it, and they're committed to doing it, and they're doing a good job of it. They, you, I, you know, you can't sort of look at these companies and say all the people who work there are evil. But what you can say is that, is that wouldn't it be much better if there was a an environmental law firm that had the that had a veto as a shareholder for all of these companies and could just say no actually that's a really bad idea and this is why we we need to pay for everything so right now we pay we pay for some things but we don't pay for everything we don't pay for the collateral damage of our decisions whether that be in supply chains and on on people or in water systems and 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 certainly in the soil and in the air. If we paid for all of these things, then I would be happy for companies to operate in the to the best of their abilities. But right now, and certainly for the last, I don't know, five decades, six decades, it's been a race to the bottom. We've never had cheaper food and cheaper fashion than we have right now. And both of those things are obscene because food should actually be expensive. If it's if it's made well and everyone in the supply chain is paid well, and we're not you know facing thirty years of harvests left before there's no topsoil anymore, food should cost us money, um, and certainly there should be no throwaway fashion. And what I 
find really troubling is that over the last maybe 15 years, luxury has almost cottoned on to this fast fashion model and has gone down the overproduction route. We, you know, the, the not just four seasons. I mean, Elvis and I don't do any seasons because I, I think it's ridiculous that you would need one belt for winter and another belt for the summer. Um, but no, you don't need one. You need five, six, seven <laughs> at least. There's not one, one belt. You need one belt for life. We actually have a system. So if you order a, a medium West End belt from us, for example, if you try and order another one, you'll get an email saying, what happened? What happened to your belt? <laughs> oh, do you? Um, yeah, and if you and yeah, that's if, brilliant. And if you if you just grew a little or shrunk a little, we can help you with that. Or if if there's if it needs an MOT, we can help you with that. You know, if if you someone got mugged with one of our handbags once, and um, I guess when you get mugged, people want the cards and the cash, but they don't want the bag. And her bag was uh, was recovered a year and a bit later because it was found under a hedge and had one of her business cards in it still. And we got this email with these incredible images saying, you know, my bag is virtually, you know, pristine, except for the rivets have rusted and the lining is moldy. So we, we had that bag brought back to us here and we replaced the rivets. That was very easy to do. And we cleaned the lining. And there it sent it off for the next decade and a half of its life until, you know, it needs another MOT or it gets left next to a rabbit hutch and something chews through the handle. But, you know, we kind of, we believe in repair. We believe in longevity. I, I really don't want people to have collections of Elvis and Cressy items. I, that, I, don't, I don't think that's necessary. I think, what is it? There's this idea, this, this uh, Swedish idea of lagom, which is enough. <laughs> I, think there, I think we have to realize that we have enough. But you do want to sell product. Yeah, I want to be the the only belt that someone has. I want to be the 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 only tote bag that someone has. And trust me, that's plenty of business to have. But you know, Elvis and I are the only shareholders. We don't have external shareholders. We don't have people who are want to meet us every quarter and and find out how much growth there is. I I I think the shareholder model has let us all down because if you think of it in its most crude way, it's a way to get someone else to create value with money you already have. And of course, you want that, that money to increase in value. And actually, and actually that's, that's been really detrimental for, for the planet and its people. I'm not saying that, that we, we have to end the world of investment, but we have to completely change what it means. I'm quite excited that, that this COP is going to be known as the finance COP and that they're really talking about how these kinds of investment structures can change for the better. Because certainly it doesn't make sense to me that we're still subsidizing fossil fuels and 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 not renewables to the same extent. We have prioritized the wrong industries. And and that's is that because I mean why do you think that is? I think it's because there has been relatively weak legislation around the world about human rights, labor rights and environmental obligations. So anything that was cheap and easy to do. I mean, fossil fuels were like a great discovery, right? Because it was this really, really readily available fuel source that just powered the industrial revolution. And once we got hooked on that drug, we were then just searching out other drugs. And, you know, polyester, that's another drug right there. These polymers, plastic, also, also fossil fuel, <laughs> there's another drug right there. And you get 
all of these things led us into this this pattern of hyperconsumption. And even think about the way um, telecommunications and computers have developed. It's it's really fast paced. Change is happening really fast. People want a new phone, a new phone, a new laptop, a new laptop. And it's it's because we are addicted to a pace of change. And actually, we need people to slow down. And I think there's still room for for products like mine in a world that's really slow. But if, hey, 20, 30 years from now, all we do is repair, I'm fine with that. If all we're doing in 20 to 30 years is growing food and uh, protecting ecosystems, I'm also fine with that. I, I have to say, if I was a CEO right now, I would I would genuinely be be happy to take on a shareholder revolt. You can because because what's going to happen to you, right? If you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a FTSE 100 company, you're you're probably wealthy enough as it is. You you as an individual, I'm are not likely to need more funds to subsidize the rest of your life. So wouldn't it be a very interesting thing to do collectively as a cohort or as a group for them to just start taking shareholders on and saying, no, actually, even if this diminishes profits for the next five years, this is the only way we're going to have a business in 10 years. And we're going to take, we're going to do, make the hard decisions now. Um, and, and tough. Fire me if you want to. Because if huge groups of CEOs did did it, there wouldn't be other CEOs to replace them. Yeah. I want to talk about Elvis and Cressy a bit. What's the workshop setup like? The workshop is 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 really different from a traditional luxury business because most uh, luxury businesses bring in raw materials, and we effectively generate our own raw materials because we bring in wastes, and then in order for them not to be waste and to be turned into these beautiful, wonderful things, we have to put a lot of time and effort into transforming them. So the the first thing that we do is 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 collect waste. The second thing we do is, you know, clean it, prepare it, transform it into usable textiles. And then we start cutting and sewing and manufacturing. And I think also the fact that we do our own manufacturing is quite interesting because again, a lot of companies have really um big, complicated supply chains and rely on a whole host of different suppliers. We rely on other suppliers for zippers and thread and hardware, but only only uh, until our forge is really working, uh, because that's that's what we're going to be replacing. So everything else we do ourselves. And and then we make the packaging too. So I think that that on site, you would see all kinds of crazy things happening, like this beautiful machine we designed with Electrolux to we created something called the Elvis and Cressy cycle to wash fire hose. It's the only machine in the world designed specifically to wash fire hose. Um, you would see a lot of equipment that was very familiar, you know, sewing machines, splitting machines, um, thicknessers, clicking presses. But then you would also see our packaging setup. So you, you basically can see when you come here everything that it takes to make a luxury good, but you'd also get to see constructed wetland sewage treatment system. And you'd also get to see holistic plant grazing of sheep in the field. And you'd also get to see, um, you know, our, our fermenting compost heaps. So I think you get, I think you get a lot more for your money with us, really, because, <laughs> because well, it's the whole package. Yes. And you also get to see the incredible impact we have on our beneficiaries. You know, you get to see the the unbelievable work that the Firefighters Charity does and that Barefoot College does. And yeah, so there's just 
there's kind of no end to what we can show you. And we can't wait for the pandemic to be over and for all of our work on the farm to be done because we basically just want people here all day, every day, sharing what we do because we, we know that when people come here, they're inspired. We know that we're giving them a roadmap for change. And it's just the last year and a half, we haven't been able to show anyone. And, and that's been really sad. I mean, I'm assuming you've got cutters and machinists or is it like everybody does everybody pulls together and somebody might do the cutting one day and stitching the next day or actually it's so we definitely don't have a system where people sit at a table and do one thing and that one thing all day every day no we don't work that way that doesn't actually make anyone very happy we've had some apprentices come to us from more traditional luxury businesses and that's what they've said is so depressing to them is that they're really good at putting in a zip or adding a pocket, but they can't construct a bag, or they can't tell you and explain to you how a social enterprise works. Um, so yeah, we, we like to get apprentices in, we like to train people from scratch, and we certainly like to move people around so that everyone knows how to use all of the equipment. In fact, I'm the least skilled person here because I'm the only person, including you know Elvis and, and everyone else, I'm the only person who doesn't sew at all. But I, I can make I can make the packaging <laughs> and I can yeah, put, well that's something <laughs> and I can put a belt together. But the sewing machines are sort of beyond me. But the yes, everyone I would say is multi skilled and capable of filling in for other people. And what's really interesting about being on the farm is we're actually going to expand the workforce again. And everyone who's currently in our crafts team is going to learn about vine care, vine maintenance, and sheep because they've actually all expressed an interest in in expanding their horizon and being able to spend time outdoors. You've kind of created this whole ecosystem in your um, on your farm mm. where you can do everything. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're certainly we're in the process of doing that. The vines will take, we won't get grapes till 2025. You know, the sheep are, we only bought the farm last December. So it's, it's a work in progress. But yes, that's, that's definitely the vision here is that isn't just self-sustaining for us, but that it could sustain a, a huge area of the local community because we're obviously going to be doing everything without chemicals, no sides, no isers. Um, you know, we're going to be producing nutrient dense, organic food, biodynamic food, just ecological outcome verified food. Um, so I, I think that that's really the vision that we have here. And that's the discussion we want to have about luxury because I think luxury businesses need to see themselves as responsible for the food system. <laughs> so that's going to be an interesting set of debates that D I continue just to Just tell, tell us a bit, a bit more about how you see that. Well, we, all luxury businesses, even, even ourselves, even if you go back to like the origin of the materials that are now the wastes that we collect, rely on natural systems. So if you're talking about leather that comes from cows, if you're talking about cotton that comes from a plant, Perfumes often come from essential oils, which come again from plants. And if luxury businesses can't afford to only source from regenerative agricultural practices, i.e. where we're building up topsoil, improving ecosystems, improving um, biodiversity, then who can't? You know, so I, I think it behooves the industry to focus specifically on the raw materials that they work with. And what, not what negative impacts those have, because that's too depressing and too stick. But to think about the raw materials that they buy and think about what the potential for positive impact could be. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with wool or cotton. I really don't. But there is a big problem with wool if the the sheep are not holistically grazed. If there isn't a plan to rebuild soil health while also maintaining a sheep herd. And that's something that we, we do here. I think there's nothing wrong with using cotton. But if you're using cotton that is hugely dependent on vast quantities of water or pesticides, then we've got a problem. So, so I do, I do think they have an enormous impact on the food system because as soon as you start putting this, these chemicals in the, in the ground, and as soon as you're involved in traditional agriculture, which is till, plow, and basically remove topsoil over time, then you're involved in the destruction of the food system. So yes, it, it might seem like they're one step removed because they're focused on design, creativity, and well, let's take creativity. They're focused on design and production, but I'm asking everyone to think about how much good they could have with their decision making. And that leads you to ask all kinds of wonderful questions. Where does this come from? Where does that come from? Where do we get this zipper? Where do we get that bit of packaging? How is this generated? How is that sourced? Where is the water coming from? Where is the electricity being generated? You know, all of these are wonderful questions. And we have technologies to solve these problems. And the luxury companies can afford all of it. Yeah, I'm just thinking about blockchain. I'm not sure I think blockchain is the solution because you can lie to the blockchain and then you've just got this lie that perpetuates as it gets, as that information follows through. So the quality of information going in is still incredibly important and the blockchain is agnostic about the quality of information that goes in. So you do, you, we do have to worry about that issue. But I do know that there are a lot of companies looking at, um, let's say, the DNA of cotton. And you can check that over time. So our testing w has improved. Our ability to understand what is in a set of raw materials has improved. The genetic markers reveal all kinds of interesting information. Uh, but effectively, we just need incredibly tight environmental legislation everywhere. And, and, and what we need is for countries where a lot of these goods are sold, like America and the UK and you know, and, and Europe to actually enforce modern slavery, slavery legislation, i.e. If, if we suspect that your goods were made with modern slavery and the boat arrives with your 40-foot container full of goods on it, you cannot unload those goods. If we suspect that you have been involved in ecocide, you can't, you can't move those goods around. If we start to really use the legislation that exists, the incentive to be good will be dramatically increased at the same time as the as the stick gets much, much heavier. So I, d I do think we need kind of both things to happen simultaneously. With your bags or with the products that you make from the fire hose, I mean, can you track the materials yes. further, further back than the fire brigade? Yes. It, I mean, it's fascinating for us because um, – Fire hose that is used in the UK is made in the UK. It's made in Yorkshire. We've been to that factory many times. Um, it's where the first fire hose of this kind was made. It's where it was invented. There's two factories in the world that make this kind of fire hose, one in the UK and one in New Jersey. And we don't get any Jersey hoses back over here. So we know exactly what was made. We know which brigades have used it. We know how long they've used them for. Every hose has an, a number on it that if you know how to decipher it, will tell you the exact day on which it was extruded. So we know where it was made, we know when it was made, we know how long it's been in active service for, and, and, and now we, and we know what, what life it's going to go out and, and have. So yeah, we're, our tracking is, is actually pretty, pretty good. 
Yeah, no, no, I mean, that's what's interesting, isn't it? Because you can do, you know, you've got that information. And not only do you have that information just as a, I suppose, as part of a scientific understanding of, of the process of make, origin, make, but it's also a great story mm. to be able to say, oh, well, this was made in 1975. Mm. You know, it was on fire engine number 12, mm. um, and it put out 75 fires. Mm. Yeah, well, it's quite a it nice is, narrative, isn't it? It is, it is, it is really lovely when we get a really old Hosen. We, we're always, I don't know, we're always sort of proud of those ones. <laughs> the real workhorses. Yeah. Well, they become special editions, don't they? <laughs> we've never done we've never done that, but I think we probably should. I think I think we probably should. Certainly, um certainly what we have done is when we get hoses from a unique location, like we took all of the hoses off of the Cuddy Sark, which when it when uh, there was a fire and it was being restored, um, so we took the fire hoses from that and all of those hoses were used to produce goods for the Cuddy Sark and for that museum. That was quite a great, a great project. And, and we do like working that way. How do we change people's behavior so that they're not buying, you know, like you said earlier, um, 10 belts or 20 belts and 10 hand, 20 handbags or whatever it might be and going to Primark and buying 45 t-shirts for two ninety nine? I think it's really interesting to talk about uh, deposits now. So, you know, in the, in, in, when I was growing up in Canada, you would pay a deposit on an aluminium can or on a glass bottle and you would get that back when you returned it for recycling. And I, I think it's time to do that for clothing. I think it's, and I think it should be a high number because you wouldn't go to Primark and buy 20 items if each one of them had a 15 pound deposit on it. It would really make you think long and hard about what items you were going to purchase. Um, and it would make you think about what was the value in deposit terms of your current closet. I think it would also make people think more creatively. If you go back to the Mary Quant days, there wasn't closets and closets overstuffed with goods. What what her generation was doing was working with what they had and constantly reinventing it and adapting it. This was a generation of people who could sew, who could repair. And I think that we have to get back to being able to grow, sew, repair, and generally understand the way ecosystems work and our part in those ecosystems and how we can have a net positive impact rather than a net negative impact. But culturally, yeah, we've got to make huge changes. And I think one thing that certainly luxury can do is just stop celebrating excess and stop celebrating wearing 25 different outfits a day and stop celebrating, you know, all of the cultural accoutrement to that. How would you define um, craftsmanship? Mm, craftsmanship is, craftsmanship is. I mean, we have a chief craftsman, and I don't know if I could come up with a definition for it. It is a, you know, it's a relentless pursuit of maximum utility, maybe, because it's not just that he's going for or we're going for perfection. Because perfection often would, you could find that more easily in something that had absolutely no use that just sat on a shelf and wasn't allowed out. You know, there's a lot of beautiful handbags out there that people keep in a dust cover on a shelf, but that's not really a handbag then, is it? It's a, no. <laughs> it's a, it's a um, waste of clothes. It's an space. ornament. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do, I think it is, yes, the, I think it's a relentless, relentless pursuit of, of, of utility and quality. And, yeah, just to watch. 
our, the way our team works is that, you know, any customer re- feedback we get where we find that maybe there's a weak spot in something, we then design that out. So when you buy a wallet from us, you're not buying this season's wallet. You're buying 16 years of getting better at making the best wallet that we possibly can. So that, and that's what craftsmanship is to us is just being really relentless about getting it right and getting it right and improving. Am I correct in understanding that some of the products you make are modular? Yes. So the leather system is entirely modular. Um, the rugs that we make, you can take them apart, make new rugs, upholster a chair, make tapestries. You can do all kinds of things with it. Also, if you, you know, as one customer did, if you <laughs> drop a fish pie on it, um, you can take apart that section and clean those pieces. And I think there was one or two pieces that just could not be cleaned. So we sent replacements for it. You can move high traffic uh, pieces to low traffic areas. You can dramatically increase increase longevity that way. Um, but yeah, they're designed for deconstruction. They're designed for repair. So we started our leather system only making rugs, which were obviously 2D flat. And then we made a doorstop. And we only made a door. We didn't even call it a doorstop. We just made it because we were trying to see if we could go around corners. And we could. We made this cube. And the great thing about the cube is that it is stuffed with the waste from the waste from the waste. So all of the leather offcuts from the offcuts and the offcuts go inside the cube. So they're quite heavy. And then we used one to prop open a door. And then someone came to the workshop and said, oh, that's a brilliant doorstop. I'll buy one of those. So we sold that one. And now we've sold thousands of them. But yeah, the the, the doorstop was a great example of a bit of R&D that then caught fire. I want to end, as I always end, um, the podcast by asking you uh, what your luxury is. What is your luxury? Oh, it's that's a really easy one. My luxury is being being here with Elvis, getting to work with him every day, getting to tackle the problems that we tackle, getting to support the charities that we support, having pizza and red wine on a Friday night, having an education. I mean, there, I have too many luxuries to mention, but really it's just the life Elvis and I get to share. Cressy Wesling, thank you so much for joining us on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thanks, John. And thanks to our partners, Intellect Books. And thank you for listening. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.